Nice. Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. Here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. Welcome to Cut to the Chase. I am your hostess, Laura Curran, and I want to thank you for spending part of your Memorial Day weekend with us here at WABC. If you find yourself not near a radio, you know you can download the app, the WABC radio app, right on your phone. Put us in your pocket. Listen to us whenever you want. You can also go on the web. It's wabcradio.com. Listen to us streaming. And this week... It always feels like there's just so much going on. All right, so my first guest you're going to hear from in a little bit is Tom DiNapoli. He is the drama-free state controller. He's sort of the steady hand amid the swirling drama of New York politics with the tectonic plates changing suddenly in power. Uh, We talk about how he keeps his cool. We talk about his political acumen. And we also talk about the finances in New York State. There's been a bit of a drop in sales tax, below expectations. What does that mean for the economy? We also talk about the MTA, which uh, seems to be always a problem. Then I speak with Jack, uh, excuse me, Jack Brinkley Cook. He runs a free transportation company operating out in the Hamptons. It's sort of like an Uber and Lyft, but you don't have to pay for it. It sounds like too good to be true. Uh, Jack grew up in the Hamptons. He happens to be the son of Christy Brinkley, who is very much associated with the Hamptons. But that's not why I have him on. I just think this is such a great idea, and I would love to see this replicated in other places. And later in the show, I'm going to speak with Tom Stebbins about... Why New York is becoming more and more business unfriendly. There is a bill percolating its way through the legislature up in Albany that could actually increase the amount of lawsuits, increase the amount of costs, and drive drive more businesses out of the state. Uh, that's something I'm not looking forward to, but we're going to get all of the information from Tom Stebbins. And what else can I tell you? I mean, I just feel like it's always a crazy week here in America. Sometimes I just want to hide my head under the sand and with all the politics. Sometimes it's good just on a, just to take a break from it all, especially on a day, uh, on a weekend like Memorial Day, where you can enjoy your family, you can remember those who have lost, we have lost, who have fought for this great country of ours, uh, just to take some time to chill and come back soon we're going to be cutting to the chase with tom dinapoli it's cut to the chase with laura curran on 77 wabc laura curran joining us alive it's cut to the chase with laura curran on 77 wabc hello everyone my first guest today is new york state controller since 2006 tom dinapoli tom welcome to the show Thank you, Laura. It's great to be on with you. Congratulations on your show. I enjoy listening to it, and I'm enjoying the opportunity to speak with you. Well, I'm so glad. Thank you for listening, and thanks for coming on. Um, I just want to start to set the table a little bit with our listeners. 
people know you. You've been around. You were a, an assemblyman for many years. You were actually uh, the youngest school board member when you were elected to the Minneapolis school, school board way back when. Wasn't way back when. Wasn't that long history. ago. <laughs> <laughs> when you get that elevator conversation, so what does the controller actually do? What's your 30-minute pitch? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I do get that question a lot <laughs> because the, the title doesn't always lend itself to explaining the job. But uh, real brief, um, what we do uh, is look after the state budget. We don't negotiate the budget. We don't make decisions on how the money's spent. That's up to the legislature, the governor. But after they make their decisions, we make sure the money is spent as intended. So we approve contracts. We approve payments. We do the payroll for the state. We do audits of state payments. We do audits as well of state government, uh, state agencies, public authorities. And then, as you know from your uh, time as county executive, we also do audits of local governments, counties, towns, villages, school districts, New York City included. So that audit function, both on the state side and local government side, is a big part of what we do. We do a lot with state operations just to keep with like the back office operation for the state. Many people know us for the state pension fund. 1.1 million New Yorkers are part of our retirement system. It's the largest pension, uh, public pension plan in the state, one of the largest in the country. Which you manage. Yep. We, so we do the benefit administration and we do the investments of the over well over $200 billion portfolio. So that's a, a big responsibility uh, right there. Uh, we comment on, on state fiscal practices. Again, we're not the policy shop, but we, we do look at that. We issue some state debt and uh, we do some, some fun things like uh, returning people's lost money, unclaimed funds. Yes, people we, love that. Yep. We administer the 529 College Savings Program, the ABLE Program for uh, disabled individuals to save. We're part of the oil spill fund. So there's some miscellaneous items that we do. But I would say if it has something to do with money, state money, we probably touch it in some way. And uh, we are the office that really emphasizes transparency and accountability. So it's important stuff. And it's important to have a steady hand when you do this kind of work. And I don't have to tell you this, but drama seems to swirl around you. But you are that calm force amid the sudden shifts of tectonic plates in power in Albany and in New York. So you took over for Alan Hevesy, who had to leave in disgrace a month after his 2006 reelection. He had pled guilty to a couple of felonies having to do with corruption and, you know, misusing money. Uh, and then you served with governors Elliot Spitzer, David Patterson, Andrew Cuomo. You know, I, I, f- I see that as three seasons of a binge worthy series just waiting to be written. Uh, but there you persevere steadily doing your job, getting reelected by really huge numbers, even in 2022, uh, when the governor basically squeaked by in what turned out to be a nail biter. A bunch yeah. of blue New York congressional seats turned red. You, a Democrat, you you basically breezed by with a 14 point lead. Uh, why? How I mean, I'm hoping that you keep a journal and that you'll write something when you're done, because I think it's it'll be a real page turner, but you can't talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have asked me to do that. Because to be honest with you, I've, I've never kept a journal, but I have a pretty good memory. You know, look, I, I think part of it is um, that the office lends itself to being less partisan than other right. offices. Right. You're not making is, you're not making those do or die decisions that are going to alienate half of the population. Well, and, and you know, the. Uh, 
controllers have been Republicans and Democrats. It's been a while since it's been a Republican, though you may remember Ned Regan was controller for a number of years. Yeah. And uh, he, he would win in years when Democrats you know, were, were being elected governor. So I think this office has always risen above the politics. Yes, and, I think and you're I right. Think you also know me for a long time. Yeah. I, I, I am, my personal style is a bit more laid back than others in this line of work, and which I think actually lends itself to the credibility of this office. Absolutely. And, and I try very hard, and I say to my team, you know, if, if, if people are going to view us um, as being an authoritative voice on, on the different issues we have to work on, uh, we can't be the ones just out there screaming or doing cheap political shots. And right. keep in mind, Laura, my, my agency is 2,800 people, right? So I also run an agency in addition to being an elected official. Most of the folks that work for me are civil servants. So so like the audits, right? We get criticized sometimes. The audits, oh, you're being political. You tell the auditors what to write. No, the auditors are professional civil service people. They call it as they see it. I don't know if they're Republicans or Democrats. I, I didn't hire them. They came into the merit system. They're trained as auditors or CPAs. When they do their work, I back them up because I, you know, I support them. But, but I always say, because we do credible work and it's not political, that's what gives us the, the, the ability to weigh in in a way that people say, all right, we may not agree with everything that comes out of the office, but at least they're doing it for the right reasons, not just to score political points. So, so that's, that's the challenge of maintaining that. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's hard because I do have to run for office. I do have to run on a political party. Right. And an interesting question once posed to me was, shouldn't the controls office perhaps be a nonpartisan office? Should that be an office that, that doesn't run with political party? Interesting question. I mean, mm. that's not, not our history of doing that in New York. But um, if ever there was an office that is certainly the least partisan, it's this office. And I'd like to think that my you know, temperament lends itself to that. So I think that's why we've been able to uh, continue. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully that that will uh, go on because I I love the work that I do. It's been a great opportunity in public service after doing kind of the other kind of work as a legislator, where you Mm -hmm. did have to have an opinion on everything and a little more contentious uh, times, you know, uh, this is a real opportunity to serve people. And that's been important given all the as you point out, the political ups and downs, people coming and going, the challenges of COVID 10, 12 years ago, the Great Recession and pulling out of that. We've been through some really complex moments, but I, I'm very proud of the fact that my office has been a stabilizing force through it all. Yeah, I think it's important to have that reassurance and to have that steady through line, that stability. And just anecdotally, you know, I speak to a lot of Democrats, Republicans. I speak with developers, the trade union guys. And to a man and a woman, I hear about you, Tom. I like that guy. You know, he's a good guy. (laughs) Um, But yet... That's a a credit to my parents more than to me. They raised me the right way. (laughs) You're very humble. Uh, But so just before, I just wanted, I want to talk about sales tax and the enacted budget. But before I get to that, just one more political thing. Um, You're, you... You're, you don't come across as a partisan at all, but I do see you as having a keen political mind. And I'll give the listeners an example. There was a dinner right before the 2022 election at the famous Crest Hollow in Nassau County. If you're involved in Long Island politics, you've been there a million times. Mm-hmm. It was right before the election. All the heavy hitters were there giving their speeches and rallying the troops before the election. But I felt your tone matched the moment better than anybody else's. Uh, It seemed that you were the only one to seize on the urgency of that moment in a way that other Democrats perhaps just wanted to avoid or at least pretend in public it wasn't there. And it was something to the effect of, guys, guys, the usual way of doing things is not working right now. Wake up. 
We mm. could lose. This this mm. could not go well for us. And it really struck me. Uh, what was going on in your mind at that time? Well, I mean, look, uh, being out there on the trail last year, you saw, uh, you know, people, people are concerned, frightened in many ways about what's happening. And Democrats are in charge, right? And we need to understand that when people are concerned and upset, they are going to take it out on the people who are in office. And we need to at least express an understanding of the frustrations that are there, own the fact that we you know, have some responsibility, but also at the same time, try to project the impression of optimism, mm-hmm. of confidence in what we're doing. And I, I felt you know, we were missing some of those opportunities. And also, you know, picking up what you said before, just not getting into our own little echo chamber. Yes. And we do that so often. Oh, yeah. And look, I mean, you know, Nassau has been a challenging place up and down in terms yeah. of the politics. I grew up at a time when it was very Republican. My parents were all Republican. My whole family was Republican. I've always had a sense that you you need to not demonize the other side right. just because they're. But that's how you govern too. You know, right. you're a tremendous support across the aisle because we're the, you got to be there with a message that is inclusive and unifying. And I, and I feel that so much of the discourse, some of the is because of the national uh, divisiveness filters down to local level where it gets way too divided in a way that it doesn't enable us to build bridges. And I think our party suffered from that last year. Yeah, well, you talked about that very eloquently. All right, let's dig down into the numbers. You recently did a report in the drop in sales tax. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, you know, our sales tax have been really strong and, and you've seen growth, uh, you know, even uh, coming out of the COVID uh, uh, recovery and the challenges of the economy. And and, and ja- even January, February this year, pretty strong growth. And I think year over year, we were up like 12, uh, over 12 percent. But in April, we see still growth, but it's slowing significantly. The April sales tax growth was only 1.5 percent. Uh, and some of that is related to inflation. Uh, so I think that shows a couple of things. Uh, it certainly shows that in many ways the economy is starting to cool. No surprise with all the uncertainty out there. And I think it shows consumers, which is what drives sales tax, right? People spending money. Mm-hmm. People are nervous about the future, uh, Laura, and I think they're holding back on some of those purchases. So, you know, all the project- projections, possible recession, high interest rates, you know, the geopolitical situation, mm-hmm. you're seeing uh, that reflected, I think, in the sales tax flowing. What we also put out recently, you know, related to that is that the first quarter, uh, or the first month, rather, April tax collections, which is the first month of our fiscal year, down lower than projected state revenues, not just when accumulation of personal income tax, sales tax, business tax, down much lower than first projected. So again, I think we're headed for a more problematic economy that's going to impact on revenues coming to New York State. New York City is going to face some of the same challenges as well. You know, when I was county exec, uh, 40% of our budget in Nassau County came from sales tax. So this is a number we watched very, very closely. So you're saying that it's coming in under what the budget, what the state budget has predicted. That could be a problem for the budget, no? Yeah, I mean, keep in mind the state budget has, you know, more uh, 
tax revenues, and obviously personal income tax being the bigger one, the right. sales tax for the state. That's true. But you point out accurately, you know, a lot, a lot of people, as you know, complain about property taxes all the time, right? Yeah. But the county, Nassau, Suffolk, uh, where we are, depends more on the sales tax. And the sales tax is much more volatile uh, than property tax. And, and and what we're seeing now is a slow. Now, whether what we're seeing in April is going to continue for the rest of the year, hard to tell. Right. But I, I think it means we need to be very careful in monitoring the revenue and the spending. This year's state budget made some significant spending commitments. Important areas, you know, health care, education, more money uh, on the mental health front. Obviously, the whole migrant issue is becoming a yes. big debate about yeah, how much money that a lot. can spend there, and the state's going to put some money to help with that. But but we need the revenue to come in to, to pay for these programs. So we need to be mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, at least for now, there's there's some concern about the revenue picture. Speaking of revenue, this these won't come online for a while, but uh, what do you think the impact of the three downstate casinos, when they are awarded, when those licenses are awarded, will have on state finances? Because casinos are basically, you know, people coming to a craps table or a Russian or roulette or whatever it is and saying, here, government, take my money. Mm. Well, let me give you my general view. Um, I, I've always felt that the proponents of expanding of gaming opportunities, be it expanding lottery options or casinos, often say, well, this is going to save us money in the long as revenue is coming in. The revenue, generally speaking, never matches what the projections are. Uh, the mobile sports betting was kind of was an exception. That came in actually higher than first projection. Yes. I, I think it's an open question as to how much, in fact, we'll get from the casinos. And you saw as part of the state budget agreement, some of that money is now going to be dedicated to the MTA, which is, you know, obviously had big needs in terms of shoring up their finances. Huge. So, so I hope it comes in as projected. I, I generally don't think we should be funding government on, you know, on, um, on gaming revenues, but uh, it's obviously here. New York is behind other states in terms of, of, of having these. But, you know, you do reach a point where you're kind of competing against yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where, you, know, the, you know, the more casinos you have, the, the more you're, you're just kind of, kind of pirating from each other and from other entertainment possibilities. But the doors are already open. There are going to be three more casinos. Uh, I hope that much more than we've done in the past, a significant amount of revenue will be dedicated to deal with the problem of addiction to gaming. People yeah. do have a gambling problem. It ruins families. It ruins individuals. We, we, you know, we shouldn't be so quick to take all the money and put it into government's, the government spending and not put a big chunk of that money into helping those that fall into the trap of addiction. So Tom DiNapoli, the New York State Controller, we have one minute we could do an hour, but I want to ask you uh, about MTA. We could do we could do a whole you know yep. week on that. Yep. Uh, fair beating and all of that. The license plates being obscured means that MTA is missing out on close to seven hundred million dollars. That's almost close to a billion. That's a lot of money. Is this just a bleeding animal that will never be whole? Well, no, I, we, can't, we can't take that point of view. But I, I do think what you're pointing out is they do need to tighten up their operations. Yeah. And, and they have been more direct about talking about the fair beating issue. Look, the, the legislature came up with some significant 
revenue sources to help the MTA through this challenging time. The federal government, credit Chuck Schumer and, and, and the federal government, really kept the MTA in life support during the COVID uh, time. But that federal money is not forever. The state money uh, hopefully will balance things out. Congestion pricing is going to be another possible revenue source to help with the capital program. But that should not be an excuse not to deal with issues like fare beating, making sure that they, they, they get rid of the redundancies in their operations, make sure they have work rules that are, that are, that are uh, effective. We need people back on the subways because so much of, yeah. of the revenue for the MTA is driven by subway and, and train and bus fares. And people, for various reasons, have still been reluctant to come back to what the levels were of, 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 of ridership uh, pre-COVID. Well, as a Long Islander, I love the Long Island Railroad. I take the subway. It, it, is, it does seem to get more crowded. The thing that drives me crazy are these license plates that people obscure so they don't have to pay the tolls. But anyway, well, that's Tom... The problem, that's the problem with the Thruway Authority, too. Yeah, they're looking for, a re- let's have for an increase also. Yeah, Let's yeah. have some enforcement of that. Tom DiNapoli, I would love to have you back. Thank you so much for enlightening us and really appreciate you joining me on Cut to the Chase. Thanks, Laura. Take care. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about transit-oriented development and a way to get around for free, not even beating the fare, doing it the right way. Next on Cut to the Chase after the break. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. So if you know anything about me, I am a huge fan of transit-oriented development, walkable downtowns, uh, places where people can go and drink and have dinner and shop and have fun without really having to get in their car so much. Uh, But one thing we've seen with the growth of downtowns, especially in suburban areas, is that uh, there's no parking. Or people want to go out, but they might not necessarily want to drink. Maybe they don't want to pay for an Uber. So this is where Rove comes in. And this is why I have invited Jack Brinkley-Cook to talk about Rove. So welcome, Jack. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. So I understand Rove is in Sag Harbor. It's in Montauk. Montauk. Uh, tell us exactly what the service is. Sure. So um, firstly, you know, I grew up out on Long Island in the Hamptons specifically. So I am a local, if you will, out there. And in 2019, I actually founded the company. And when we originally launched, we launched with a program that delivered passengers looking to travel between New York City and the Hamptons. So a slightly different program than we run currently. But, um, you know, unfortunately, a year after we launched, it was 2020 and mm. we were faced with a pandemic, as was everybody. And so many stories are like, well, we did this. Yeah. And then the pandemic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But for us, it was actually um, it was actually somewhat bittersweet because. When we launched, shortly after launching, we began working with the local government in the Hamptons, specifically the then mayor of Sag Harbor, Mayor mm-hmm. McCulley. And she was looking to work with a locally based transportation company to help solve things um, like congestion within towns, parking issues, drunk driving, all the, the typical issues that small municipalities that get very busy, um, right. such as and the Hamptons do. If you've ever been to Sag Harbor and summer is coming, so people are going to be heading out to the Hamptons a lot now, uh, it's a great little downtown, but it, a real dearth of parking. It is, yes. It's a, it's a fantastic area, and, that, and that's the case for the entire Hamptons, a fantastic area, but the infrastructure just maybe isn't built to handle the amount of people that come in for the summer months. And so, you know, as a result, they were looking for some 
something that could help aid in all of the issues that they were facing. And so my partner, Gianpaolo De Felice, and I kind of set out with the goal of and he's seeing, a restaurant guy from he, out there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he, has, he has a couple of restaurants in the Hamptons already, so he, you know, naturally was familiar with the market. And myself growing up out there, you know, I've lived out there my entire life, so I know the area incredibly well. And we, we set out with the mayor um, of Sag Harbor to see if we couldn't put together a program that could help with what they were looking to do. And... That's when really Rove as we know it today was born. Um, and what is it? What is it exactly? What is the service? Sure. So we operate a micro mobility rideshare service within the Hamptons. Sort so, of like an Uber or a Lyft. Sort of like an Uber or a Lyft, only that our rides are all short distances. So the average ride is no more than two miles in length. We really focus on providing last mile options to riders and passengers who may be looking to go from the hotel into town or the restaurant back to their house nearby. We're not in the business of providing mid-distance or long-distance transportation, so we won't take you town to town or from the Hamptons into New York City. We're really focused on providing and creating an infrastructure within the towns that we operate. So in addition to that, we run an entirely electric fleet of vehicles. In fact, all of our vehicles are now Teslas. We made the conversion from a vehicle we were using previously to the Tesla Model 3 last summer. So we're really excited about that because... Is that important to you, the whole sustainability piece? Definitely. I mean, when we launched originally our service between New York City and the Hamptons, one of our key elements was trying to create a shared transportation option that was upgraded and elevated so that people who would normally take private transportation, private cars, limousine services, etc., would feel comfortable um, embarking in a shared transportation method that was at the standards that they wanted um, wanted it to be at going to the Hamptons. So we've always been focused on having a, a, an edge of sustainability, but you know, especially with the w- direction that the world's going, um, when we launched this sort of revitalized program this, uh, in 2020, 2021, we knew that we had to kind of increase the efforts and make sure that at the core of who we are, um, we were a environmentally sensitive and responsible company. So um, it is definitely important for us to operate an electric fleet of vehicles. Um, I I personally think that it's the only modern thing to be done. Um, It didn't really make sense when we were going out and purchasing vehicles to look at anything that wasn't electric, um, just because not only, you know, is the environmental edge there, of course, but Quite frankly, from an operational perspective, electric vehicles are actually significantly easier for us to maintain Mm. and operate than a gas vehicle. No oil changes. (laughs) Exactly. No oil changes, less maintenance, and that's all great for us. So So, so, so it's within the village or the town, the little town, the downtown area. Um, And you're in Sag Harbor in Montauk. Anywhere else yet? So we're in Sag Harbor, East Hampton, Hampton. Montauk. We are And the important thing is it's, what does it cost? Well, the important thing is, is that we are free. Okay. Yeah. That sounds so, too good to be true. Yeah. So we, all of our rides are entirely for free. Um, and we're able to provide the rides for free because we work with brand advertisers who are interested in advertising for their company or their product within the markets that we... So they put it on the car. Correct. What they, kind of advertisers do you do you get? So so, the, they, so we activate the entire experience for our, our advertisers. So in addition to a vehicle wrap, so the entire vehicle gets wrapped in their advertisement, we also facilitate in-ride um, advertisements as well. So the vehicles are equipped with iPads that can display pretty much whatever our advertiser wants mm. to display. So 
they, you know, they can at times they'll use it to display further ads. Sometimes they'll take in data um, from our passengers as they're riding. And, you know, ultimately the entire experience start to finish is all um, ad driven. So I have a question. I'm thinking about these growing downtowns in Nassau County where I live, Rockville Center, uh, Farmingdale, those kinds of places. Are you looking to grow this? Is this something that you see expanding? Yeah, definitely. Um, we, you know, we we originated in the Hamptons, but our goal has always been kind of to spread westerly on Long Island. Naturally, we just think it makes the most sense in terms of and parking company. is the, always a huge headache. That's the, one of the biggest complaints from constituents. Definitely. Um, over the past few months, I've been meeting with various um, heads of muni- municipalities throughout Long Island, and are they receptive? They they have been very receptive, and they've all shared the the common theme that. The same issues that are faced in the Hamptons, such as um, congestion and parking issues and um, and drunk driving, Drinking. unfortunately, are, you know, obviously not just contained to the Hamptons and they're an issue throughout Long Island. So um, we've had, like I said, uh, a series of meetings with um, a bunch of, of different people who have all taken to the program very, very well. And so... We are looking at targeting a few um, towns western on western on on sorry on western Long Island where we can and bring the program to. So we are definitely interested in looking to expand. Uh, how about out of New York? So um, I, I think a moment ago you asked about who our partners were um, and some of the advertisers that we work with. Um, just to name a few, we work with Optimum, who if you're listening to this on Long Island, then I'm sure you're <laughs> familiar with because they are our largest cable provider out there. So they are one of our advertisers. Um, in addition to them, we advertise for a tequila company um, who uh, basically wanted to take the edge that although they are an alcoholic beverage company, they wanted to in turn provide a way that people in the Hamptons who maybe are consuming their product could safely and efficiently get around. So they're advertising with us this summer in Montauk and we're actually going to be um, taking the program with them to Aspen, Colorado in the winter. So do you get any static from Uber or Lyft or the the other kinds of rideshares that are not free? Do they have they tried to in, interfere in any way? You know, at, to, at this moment, we haven't. Um, you know, I think that Uber and Lyft, they're the size of those companies is so much so that we are we are not legions cons- of lawyers. <laughs> we are not a concern to them yeah. yet. I yeah. you know, honestly if 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 we do become one, I, I suppose that's a, a good thing for us. It means that we're right. expanding and, and and kind of going and trending in the right direction. Um, but you know, we also provide a unique service. Whereas, you know, I think Uber is more focused on slightly longer distance rides. Right. We're we're really isolated and unique in the sense that we're focused entirely on micro distance and short distance rides and that's our niche and and that works. last mile first mile thing is the the, mo- the most challenging part of public transportation definitely i mean you know um i've been commuting between the hamptons and new york city my entire life and so you know the way that we commute is we've always either taken the train or we take the bus and the issue growing up especially as a kid before i could leave my car at the train station or leave my car at the bus station was how do i get home um you know uber and taxi services on long island are often very expensive and can price people out and are you within is your radius in where you're where you are now in the Hamptons is the train station included in that 
So in Montauk, yeah, we are in East Hampton. We are um, in Sag Harbor. There isn't a train station, right. but we are the the Hampton Jitney, which is the provider um, who brings people between the city and the Hamptons most frequently to Sag Harbor. We're within their coverage zone. So if you're on any of those modes of transportation and you need a last mile or a first mile option, we're definitely there and able to provide it. I think this is great. This is exactly what we need. And I think it will it could potentially encourage more transit oriented development, more vibrant, walkable communities where young people want to be, where old people want to be, where everyone wants to be. Uh, And I want to thank you, Jack Brinkley Cook, for taking the initiative. Local boy, local boy done good. And uh, we look forward to seeing your future success. Thank you so much for having me. And if you get out to the Hamptons, call up Rove. You can get an app for that, right? Yep. Everything's handled over an app. Download the app and away you go. All right. Thanks for joining me on Cut to the Chase. Thank you. Cut to the Chase. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. So it's no secret that New York is often rated one of the least business-friendly states. Uh, A big part of that is lawsuits, many lawsuits for businesses for many reasons. And my next guest is Tom Stebbins. He's executive director of the Lawsuit Alliance of New York. He's concerned that a law that has been introduced but not yet passed, in fact, it's come up a couple of years before but hasn't been passed, could make business uh, New York even less business friendly. It's called the 21st Century Antitrust Act, and here to unpack all this is Tom Stebbins. Welcome to the, welcome back to Cut to the Chase. Thanks so much, Laura. Great to be with you. So the last time you were here, we talked about the scaffold law and why that makes building and essentially living in New York more expensive. Tell me what you're concerned about with this antitrust act, because, hey, you know, antitrust, you think of robber barons, you think of Theodore Roosevelt. It sounds like a good thing, right? Yeah, and as you said, the scaffold law makes building more expensive, but what the Antitrust Act does is it makes succeeding more expensive. It relies on this untested theory of dominant position in the marketplace, which is more than 30% of the potential market. Now, that sounds, well, gosh, you know, you would, you would want to regulate that in some way. The problem is, is there's lots of industries, lots of things where a dominant position is just a natural state. You could have a rural area that only has a supermarket or two, right? So they're potentially engaging in antitrust activities. Mm. Maybe there's only one tire store for 30 miles around. Maybe there's only one company that manufactures a particular widget that goes into a particular medical device or what have you. And because they're manufacturing that, They are creating and developing life-saving innovations for all of us, but this bill would allow lawyers to come and essentially sue them out of business saying that you have an abuse of dominance. Well, at a certain point, we should not be incentivizing taking people who have succeeded in their business to court and extracting money from them. And it's not just profit-seeking lawyers. You could see a situation where competitors might do this, right? So if you have, say, a Wegmans that has a large portion of the market in a part of New York, and then Whole Foods comes in and says, well, you're abusing your dominance, we are going to sue you, that could, they could then settle and say, all right, well, here's the money to open up a Whole Foods right across the way from us. Hmm. 
Now, people who defend this uh, are saying that, well, this will actually protect small businesses. They're saying something different from what you're saying. This will protect small businesses. It'll protect consumers. And it will keep these, you know, greedy corporations from just getting richer and richer. Yeah, the irony of that is that this is kind of meant for Facebook and Google and, you know, those giant companies. I think that's kind of the goal. But unfortunately, the way the law is written is that they essentially say a dominant position in the marketplace, which could be so many different groups. Right. right? We've heard from lumber yards on this. I mean, if you think about it. There's not a whole lot of places that have lumber yards, right? And yet you want those to exist somewhere near your community. Do you need three of them? Do you need six of them? It's funny. Probably I'm thinking not. of I'm thinking of I live in Baldwin. There's this famous stringed instrument store called Colstein's. There aren't many others around. Are they gonna could they right. potentially be sued? Yeah, exactly. How many stringed instrument stores are there? in 30 miles of Baldwin, probably not many. And so you could see a situation where private attorneys could then come and say, this is an abuse of dominance. And that doesn't do anything for the consumer at all. Essentially, what it will do is put some of these small businesses out of business, put some of these innovators out of business, and essentially send more people online to order from Amazon and order Mm. from Facebook and use Google. So it's almost going to have the exact opposite effect of what the the drafters of this bill are trying to do, simply the way the language is drawn up. So that's what our concern is, is we support trying to regulate monopolies, but we don't support doing it in such a way in this kind of amorphous legal standard that can really rope in a lot of smaller businesses that you might not expect. Now, this bill was passed by the Senate but not the assembly right. in 2021, same in 2022. Uh, is this, is, what is the status of it for 2023? Has it been passed by the Senate yet? It has. I don't know if it's moved in the Senate yet. I'd have to look at that. But, you know, obviously with it moving in the Senate, there's a concern that it is just one step away. Yeah. If the assembly were to pass it. And, and do you think so- this year might be different than the, the previous two years? It's certainly possible. I mean, there's more kind of concerns about antitrust, concerns about anti-competitive behavior, and we get that. And we believe that we should try to find ways to regulate that. But the way this bill is currently drafted is not the way to do it. And so that's why we're kind of trying to sound the alarm. Uh, Because, again, you could see even, you know, I mentioned kind of more rural things like lumber yards, but you could see a situation in the Bronx where, you know, there's not a whole lot of supermarkets in a particular area around a thing. You have these things known as food deserts, right? Well, what we don't want to do is sue the one supermarket that's trying to make a go out of it, out of business saying that they are abusing their position in that food desert in the Bronx. So again, that's another way that it's going to have the exact opposite effect is what they're trying to do. Yeah, it's hard enough to run a grocery store these days. One one interesting aspect of this bill is that it gives the attorney general an elected position a lot of flexibility in interpreting and enforcing the act. And if you're say you are a super progressive and you don't like corporations and you really think you're fighting for the little guy, uh, be careful what you wish for, because someday there could be someone else sitting in that seat as attorney general 
who has a completely different ideological bent than you? And are you sure you want to give up that much control to an elected official for something like this? Absolutely. I mean, just think about what Ron DeSantis is doing with Disney. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and talk about abuse of power. You know, Disney has a pretty good hold on Orlando last night. <laughs> and I think most people would agree what Ron DeSantis is doing there to essentially attacking this corporation. If he had more power, if he had more teeth, if he had essentially the powers of the attorney general where he could bring even criminal things, I mean, that, that would be devastating. And you could see a situation where elected officials would use this for politically motivated witch hunts to just get the headline, to get the, to right. get, make sure that they have the press conference. And the problem is, is at the end of the rainbow, to use a Disney analogy, there's mm-hmm. an actual business that employs actual people. Now, this law also, there was something about allowing more class action claims class action suits to enforce its provisions. Is this is this an aspect of the bill that's particularly concerning to you, Tom Stebbins, of the Lawsuit it, Alliance of New York? It absolutely is. And we actually, there's another bill out there, too, that essentially does the same. But in terms of this bill, it would essentially privatize, it would deputize private attorneys to kind of go after these things. So in addition to giving the attorney general more power, which has certain problems, it would also deputize private attorneys to go after these lawsuits. And you can see a situation where they would file those lawsuits in order to extract money from any business that they could, that they believed had abusive dominance. But you bring up a great point, too, about class actions. There's another bill out there that essentially incentive that increases the minimum damages for class actions from $50 to $1,000. Hmm. So every crazy lawsuit that you hear about where somebody says, you know, there weren't enough juji fruits in my juji fruits box, or when I opened up this bag of TGI Friday's potato skins, potato chips, it wasn't piping hot <laughs> potato skins <laughs> with sour cream on them. Like they, these are literal lawsuits that actually happen. Wow. You know, my funions don't have the nutritional value of onions. Well, these are Shocking. literal lawsuits that were actual filed. My Greek yogurt's not from Greece, whatever. Wow. And the problem with those suits, if you increase that minimum from 50 to $1,000, what you do is you take essentially a nuisance suit where somebody might say, I had two cents of damage, and you turn it into a $200 million potential liability for, say, Chobani, which is a great New York company. Great New York company. Happens to make Greek yogurt. Yeah. And so they faced one of these lawsuits. And because it was seriously, a that's a serious lawsuit that this gr- <laughs> Greek yogurt is not from Greece. Serious is a strong word. <laughs> An <laughs> actual a real lawsuit. Holy is crap. it real? Yes. Is it serious? <sighs> no. And I would say most of the people that ate Chobani yogurt didn't say, oh, my God, I was injured because this is from New York. It says right on the canister. It's from New York. And we want we want it to be in New York. We love that it's in New York. We don't want it to go somewhere else. That's right. It's a long way from Greece, and dairy is not super good on long trips. So let's make this from New York. And by the way, I just have to say, Funyuns, someone thought there was actual nutritional value in a Funyun? I'm sorry. They did. They said they sued them, saying it did not have the nutritional value of onions. Now, I would argue that nobody actually thought that yeah. this should happen. But an attorney, a lawyer, 
said, you know what, I can file this lawsuit. A judge might not throw it out, maybe. And if he doesn't, it's going to cost the company money to defend it, and they'll just pay me instead. Well, and that's a real problem. So let's just let's just take this Chobani idea a little further. Chobani, you know, may be faced with this kind of lawsuit and then we'll have yep. to pay so much more if found to be liable. Well, wouldn't Chobani, along with other companies, just pack up and move somewhere else and, and employ people in other states? Absolutely, which is part of the reason things like this should be done at the federal level, right? If you want to, if you want to crack down on antitrust behavior, don't do it at the state level. Do it at the federal level. And if you want to, you know, do something with class actions, that's fine. But why would Shivani want to stick around for that, right? They can literally just go 60 miles south of Pennsylvania. There's plenty of dairy farms there, and set up shop there. And that's no skin off their nose. And then you know what? They can say, geez, I'm not going to face this essential, existential crisis from a potential class action, from a ridiculous lawsuit. Right? I think we can all agree that that's an absurd lawsuit. Why, why, why lit, expose your business to that kind of liability? It doesn't make any sense. And so it does chase businesses out. So in this era of uh, dis- dis- discussing these kinds of issues via Twitter, a uh, few characters, slogans, talking points. How do you fight this when the talking points of taking on the big corporations, looking out for the little guy, you know, this is the, the transfer of wealth is unacceptable. The talk, you know, and then you think of the antitrust and just, just the great feelings that people have about breaking up these monopolies. How do you fight that in a PR way in in a very progressive state with very progressive state politicians? Yeah, I mean, I think what you have to do is you have to demand more of your legislators, because what the legislators are essentially doing here is they are using litigation to legislate because they would rather just mm. say, you know what, here's what I want to do. I'm going to just let a bunch of private attorneys run roughshod over the entire economy and let's see what happens. And then I don't have to do my actual job which is designing thoughtful and careful legislation. And so to me, we can't have our legislators using litigation as legislation. Mm. That's not what it's for. So to me, as a progressive, if you're a progressive and you're listening to this, demand more of your legislators. Don't let them deputize every profit-seeking lawyer out there to go and enforce the law. We, especially if you're concerned about large profits, right? Yeah. Don't all of a sudden give more large profits to lawyers that are essentially abusing our civil justice system to make a profit. And I defy anybody who might be listening to this on the highway right now, I guarantee you, you will see a lawyer ad on a billboard in the next mile, right? Like, yeah. That's a thing in New York. And there's a reason for that because we have so often used lawyers to essentially do the legislature's job. And that is not 
right. Yeah, that is not the way it was intended. There's also a danger of government uh, over overdoing, overplaying its hand, wanting to run everything, have its hands in everything. And I, I do believe in a certain amount of regulation, but we just want to make sure that it doesn't get run amok because then we're just going to run these businesses out of the state. Tom Stebbins of the Lawsuit Alliance of New York, thank you for talking about a difficult issue in a way that is incredibly understandable. Appreciate the enlightenment. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Laura. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Well, thanks for listening to us today on Cut to the Chase. Uh, It is Memorial Day tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I'm a Long Island person. I'm really looking forward to summer. Although I often think when Memorial Day comes around, well, summer's over. (laughs) And then you got the 4th of July and then you got... You got Labor Day and then it's all back. No, but I'm not going to get negative like that. We've had a gorgeous spring. And uh, I don't know if you know this about me, listeners, but I moved a lot as a child. So uh, I was born in Canada. I moved to Belgium. Then I spent a lot of time in Florida, believe it or not, where we basically lived at the beach which was wonderful. Then I moved to Long Island, then moved to California, back to Canada, uh, went to high school in Washington, D.C. So I really got to see a lot of the world, see a lot of this country of ours. And one thing that I am so grateful for is that I do live in a country that has very, very precious freedoms. And while we're enjoying the beaches and while we're enjoying the barbecues, You have to take that moment, just that one moment for gratitude and to thank the people who lost their lives fighting for our freedoms. The ability to think for ourselves, the ability to have a free press, the ability to choose the people who lead us. This is very rare in the course of human history. In fact, it's very rare in the world right now. So embrace it. Coming up next on WABC, it's Positively Ernie and Patricia with Ernie Anastas and the beautiful Patricia Stark.